This is a Piccolo podcast production. The Lunar Park fire occurred on the 9th of June 1979 and tragically took the lives of seven people. A father and his two sons and four schoolmates from Waverley College in Sydney's east. In the last episode, we went through the harrowing night the fire occurred. In this episode, we look at the subsequent investigation and the mystery of how the fire started. I'm your narrator, Alex Malone, and welcome to Fairground Fuckups. The investigation that followed the ghost train fire yielded little in the way of satisfying answers for the tragedy. The initial findings blamed faulty wiring in the ride's electrical system for causing the inferno. However, a later inquiry disproved that claim, leaving no official cause at all. Park management were heavily criticised for their lack of preparedness and inadequate fire suppression equipment. An independent assessment in the year leading up to the tragedy led to a recommendation that the park should invest in sprinkler systems to be installed on several of the rides chief among them the ghost train. The recommendations were never actioned. No criminal charges were ever filed against the park operators. Shortly after, they lost their lease on the site, and Lunar Park found itself in the hands of new management. Although official investigators have shed little light on the true cause of the ghost train fire, independent investigators have never stopped searching for those responsible. The stories that have emerged over the years have drawn suspicion to an infamous lord of Sydney's criminal underworld and a terrifying occult figure. Sometime after the Lunar Park ghost train tragedy in 1979, Jenny Godson came across the photographs taken throughout that day. The trip that had ended in the death of her husband, John, and their two sons, Damien and Craig, was meant to have been a fun family holiday in the big city, Sydney from their rural hometown of Warren. Earlier in the day, the family had visited Taronga Zoo after taking in the sights of the city. Upon returning to Warren, Jenny had all but forgotten the roll of film left in the camera. It had only been developed after Jenny had loaned the camera to a friend. While beset with mixed emotions as she relived the joyous moments of that fateful day, she stopped to stare at one in particular, A photograph that made her blood run cold. The photo was of her son Damien, the last one ever taken of the boy, in which he poses with an uneasy expression on his face, standing next to an intimidating figure dressed only in leopard print loincloth and wearing a demonic-looking mask with horns on his head. Jenny had no memory of the picture being taken, but she suddenly recalled the disturbing figure. Before arriving at the gates of Luna Park, the Godson family were treated to the spectacle of a parade in the streets on Sydney Harbour. While there was no clear theme to the participants and nothing to declare the purpose of the festive gathering, there was a distinctly folk sensibility about the parade. The cow-headed figure had, to Jenny's memory, seemed to be the parade's ringleader. At one point, he had stopped his prancing and turned to stare at the Godson boys. He approached young Damien, towering over the shy child momentarily, before placing a friendly arm around the boy's shoulders, while John, Jenny's husband, captured the moment on film. 
After sharing the photo with friends, family and ultimately with the investigators, comparisons were made between the figure in the photograph and the ancient Canaanite god, or demon, depending on which version of the story you read, known as Moloch. Moloch, a monstrous idol often represented as having the head of a cow, is associated with the very origins of child sacrifice. Depictions of the idol suggest that it was essentially a great bronze oven into which children would be placed to be burnt alive. As outlandish as it sounds, people found it hard to let go of the connection between this pagan entity and the way in which the ghost train fire seemed peculiarly confined, not touching the rest of the park and almost exclusively targeting children. Had this devil-horned man been responsible for the blaze that night? Was this some sinister way to offer up human sacrifices to an ancient god? Had Damien Godson been targeted or chosen? Jenny believed something evil was at work, but the mystery remained. Who exactly was the horned, masked man? Other investigators maintained that no such supernatural involvement was needed to cause the tragedy. Sydney had plenty of her own monsters. In 1980, Queensland and New South Wales, along with Newark, New Jersey, would be voted in the top five most corrupt states in the Western world. While notorious convicted murderer and former cop Roger the Dodger Rogerson was terrorising the streets of Sydney, another so-called businessman was weaving his spell on the politicians and police of Australia's premier city. Abe Saffron, a self-described collector of things, was one of those almost legendary criminal figures who committed a crime every single day of his adult life. And in the end, just like Al Capone, wound up serving time in prison for tax evasion. Known to the public through the tabloids as Mr Sin, Saffron was one of the most powerful and successful of Sydney's crime bosses, and by far the most unusual. Most of his money came not from the time-honoured mob tradition of standing over other illegal businesses, but from owning and operating his own entertainment venues. It just so happened that much of the entertainment he offered, alcohol, gambling and prostitution, was illegal, or at least heavily legislated at the time. Because of the need to protect his many establishments, and due to his own business skills, he became a key underworld figure involved in the corruption of politicians and police over a period of several decades. Saffron was born in Sydney in 1919. Like most serious criminals, he chose to serve his country during World War II on the home front. By the second half of the 1940s, he owned a number of pubs and nightclubs. For years, pubs and clubs in Australia had to stop selling alcohol at 6pm, bringing about the infamous six o'clock swill and leaving a gap in the market that Saffron would fill. His fortune was founded on flouting the war and post-war restrictions on the supply and serving of beer. Saffron would illegally transfer grog from his hotels to his clubs, where it would be sold at night for enormous markups. He attracted people to his clubs by bringing out top American singers, such as Frank Sinatra, and made extra money from the prostitution that occurred on some of his premises. 
he expanded into other states and evaded official efforts to restrict his activities by taking out most of his liquor licences in other people's names. A sex addict himself, one of the few prosecutions he faced was for participating in an orgy at Palm Beach, Saffron sold pornography and provided blue movies to cinemas. At his height, he had interests in a hundred brothels, known for a while as massage studios, and 50 nightclubs around the country. In 1960, he opened Australia's first strip club, the Staccato in King's Cross, soon followed by the iconic Pink Pussycat and many others. He took over the lease of Leg Girls and later financed gay clubs. Upon Saffron's death in 2006, his son Alan said, My father was a visionary and the founder of the modern entertainment industry in Australia, providing fabulous clubs, pubs, gambling and sex to the public, all of which is legal today. There is some truth in that. To borrow again from the notorious Al Capone, Saffron was simply responding to the will of the people. How did Abe Saffron fit into the history of Luna Park and the tragedy that claimed seven lives on the night of June 9th, 1979? It would take six years for any suggestion of his involvement to be made public. Immediately following the ghost train fire, Luna Park was closed by New South Wales authorities in order to launch a full coronial inquest. The investigation lasted for a month as they carefully inspected the ruins of the ride itself as well as the infrastructure of the Sydney fairground. While proceeding from an assumption that the lack of proper maintenance would undoubtedly have been the reason for the fire, Coroner Kevin Anderson concluded that the ride's wiring and internal systems were not the source of the ignition. While he went on to criticise the park operators and staff for failing to ensure even basic fire suppression systems were readily available, ignoring advice given by the City Council and the Fire Department the previous year, he also reluctantly determined that the negligence on their part could not constitute a criminal charge. Given their complete failure in duty of care to park patrons, the lease held by the management on the park was vacated. No cause for the fire was ever identified. By the end of the month of July, the New South Wales government called for new tenders for Luna Park. The recently deposed managers submitted new tenders twice. Both were rejected. It was time for the park to enter a new season. In the year that followed, the entire park was demolished and rebuilt to new standards. But the iconic smiling face was listed as an Australian heritage site, meaning it could not be removed or destroyed and the park could not be raised to make way for another series of harbourside apartment buildings. In 1985, a member of Australia's parliament, Michael John Hatton, publicly alleged that Abe Saffron had been in a position of beneficial ownership over Luna Park at the time of the fire. This salacious piece of gossip sparked a renewed interest in the event, which was made all the more potent the following year when New South Wales authorities determined that the fire was worth investigating and reopened the ghost train fire case. Of particular interest to the new investigative team was the fact that Abe Saffron had been linked to no less than seven cases of arson on Sydney's business properties, which he had seemed keenly interested in. Martin Sharp, 
a Sydney-based artist who had been involved with Luna Park, stated that sometime in 1977, Abe Saffron had approached Ted Hopkins, the owner of the Luna Park site, with an offer to purchase the property from him. Hopkins was not interested, but reports on the character of Abe Saffron suggest that he was not a man to give up easily. The 1986 investigation uncovered ties between Abe Saffron and a Sydney amusements company which had supplied Luna Park with a pinball and arcade machines. Police now had two possibilities to consider. Firstly, that Abe Saffron, furious at Ted Hopkins' refusal to sell and determined to get what he wanted, arranged for an accident to occur which would force the park to cease operations and diminish its value. Saffron could have then swooped in and picked up the property at a bargain price and then make a small fortune. Secondly, they considered that Saffron had been exerting a controlling interest in park affairs through this amusement supplier. Merely a puppet by which he could gradually take over. This would render the fire, assuming it was deliberately lit, to be something more like a ploy to collect on insurance and again provide the opportunity to rebuild the park into a more profitable venture. This second investigation ultimately concluded that while the ties to Saffron were a reason for concern, there was no way he could conceivably have benefited from the disaster. This was something Saffron himself had maintained over the years as he repeatedly denied any involvement or knowledge of the ghost train fire. As for his connections to the arcade supplier, at this point in his career, Saffron had ties to nearly everyone. Interestingly, while no new evidence was presented at the conclusion of this second investigation, the team involved did conclude that the initial coronial inquiry had not been conducted to a sufficient standard. Nothing of consequence ever came from this, and the public gradually began to move on from the story. Then, in 2007, Saffron's niece, Anne Buckingham, claimed in an interview with the Sydney Morning Herald that her uncle was indeed responsible for the fire. Buckingham claimed the attack was part of a plan for Saffron to gain control of Luna Park's lease although she stated her belief that the seven deaths were not intended. Buckingham later denied she made the comments attributed to her and attempted to have the story retracted. It's worth noting that her allegations were only made in the year following Abe Saffron's death. Looking over photos of the ghost train, it's easy to see why it would go up so quickly. The building was entirely wooden and the maze of maintenance corridors and service cupboards meant that it was virtually impossible to detect the first stages of a fire. Take into account that the park's substandard fire hose system and the lack of a proper maintenance schedule were well known, it paints a convincing picture of an opportunity for anyone with a motive. However, even to those with a motive, there would have been no benefit at all in starting a blaze at the time when the park was crowded with patrons, risking innocent lives. Saffron and others like him in his day were ruthless in business, bullies, liars and thieves, but rarely let their violence spill out onto people who had nothing to do with them. If Saffron had ordered the arson, his men would have had no trouble jumping the gate after midnight. Luna Park was not exactly a secure location. It is worth mentioning that the ghost train fire was not the first issue 
that Luna Park had experienced in the year of 1979. Earlier in April, a malfunction on one of the cars on the Big Dipper caused a collision that injured 13 people. The investigation into this incident determined that wear and tear on the ride and a lack of proper maintenance were to blame. Just because no source of ignition was ever identified does not necessarily point to foul play. There are a number of unintentional ways in which a spark, left unchecked, can create an inferno. On a bright spring day, you can explore the artist's row of Lavender Bay, where you can see tributes and sculptures by many of Australia's top artists. Generally, there will be people milling about. Private schoolgirls will be having a blanketed picnic lunch in the wonderfully curated Wendy's Garden, named after Brett Whiteley's wife whose selfless gardening has sculpted one of the best features of the harbour city. If you look carefully, you may see the sculpture just west of Luna Park, around the back. A depiction of a cartoon-like figure bending over with a teapot on its head. Playful and fun. Then along the carved stone below are the names John, Craig and Damien Godson, Jonathan Billings, Richard Carroll... Michael Johnson and Seamus Rahili, along with a plea that we must look after our children. The sculpture was done by Australian cartoonist Michael Lunig, voted as a national living treasure by the National Trust. The inscription reads, To all those who take refuge in this place, make a small commitment to the protection to children as they play. There was a nationwide search for the man dressed as Moloch, Looking at the photo, he appeared to be in his 20s at the time it was taken, putting him in his late 60s now. To this day, no one has ever come forward. 2020 marks the 85th anniversary of Luna Park, operating under its latest management continuously for 16 years. Its most recent promotion has been Hello Scream, a Halloween scarefest where you show up on Halloween and pay money to get scared by the setups the park takes you through. I'm Alex Malone, and season two of Fairground Fuck Ups will be released in early 2021. Enjoy your local fairground and be careful. podcast was produced by piccolo podcasts we make branded podcasts for local businesses or companies and produce our own original shows if you want to know more about piccolo podcasts or are thinking of starting your own show head to our website piccolopodcast.com.au or find us on twitter and instagram at piccolo podcast the link to our website is in the episode notes